us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, it's Brian. Welcome to episode six of the Lundloop podcast. I think I've got the mouth sounds thing solved. I've got the microphone far enough away from my mouth. Just had some water. Oh, I gotta swallow, hold on. But I think I've got it fixed. I don't know, we'll see, <laughs> see if it's fixed or not. Uh, so this is the podcast where we throw off the shackles of technical analysis and stretch a little bit, talk about things market trading, investing-wise, outside of TA. But actually, today, I want to talk a little bit about technical analysis. Actually, a lot. Not too much, but a little bit about technical analysis. As anyone that has followed me or is a Lundloop member or, you know, knows me, I'm all technical analysis all the time. I don't follow any fundamental analysis. I don't do growth investing. I don't do value investing. I don't do any of those things. And um, I don't know if I've ever talked explicitly about why, or I guess back up, how I came across technical analysis and why I ended up landing where I, I am right now about technical analysis. And the thing about TA is it took me three tries to actually get some traction with technical analysis. I tried it for one reason, didn't work. Tried it for another reason, didn't work. Then finally landed on the third reason. I want to just talk a little bit about this. So I did my first trade in 1985, about a month after I turned 18. And probably for the first five years, that would take me to like 1990-ish, I had no idea what technical analysis was. I didn't know why I was buying something, why I was selling something. I think what I probably did back then, if I'm if I'm thinking correctly, I probably read IBD. That's probably what I did. I probably bought stocks that I thought were hot in IBD. I remember buying one called Prepaid Legal PPD that did fantastic from IBD. But I didn't have any framework for why I would buy it or why I would sell it. It was really just, you know, I don't know, this name looks hot. There was somebody that wrote an article about it in IBD and, you know, okay, I'll buy it. But I didn't know when to sell it or do anything like that. Sometime in the early 90s, I came across this bulletin board on Prodigy, which was one of the first online, um, I guess, internet services. It's really weird to think about it now. These were these walled services like America Online. The, the idea of the internet back then was it was a, a gated community that you had to have, you know, you had to pay to get into. Now, of course, it's the total opposite. So I came across a bulletin board on in the money talk section of Prodigy. I gotta swallow again. And uh, that's where I first saw some discussions about technical analysis. And the first thing that attracted me to technical analysis was I thought, oh, this is a secret thing that nobody knows about. And it's true, nobody did know about it. Or if you did mention technical analysis back in the 80s and 90s, people literally said it was voodoo. They said it was there was no value to it whatsoever. Everything was about fundamental analysis. Everything was about PEs. Everything was about growth, valuations, et cetera, et cetera. 
So nobody believed in technical analysis. And so I thought, oh, there's this little, you know, esoteric thing that, that nobody knows about and I'm gonna figure it out and make a gazillion dollars. And so I, I don't even know how I found this. There was, there was some company that sold books on stock market investing. I think they must have had some technical analysis books. Somebody online had mentioned uh, WD GAN. So I ordered WD GAN's book. Now, if you don't know who WD GAN is, William Delbert GAN is his name. He's one of the more mysterious names from the, the, the beginnings of trading. Everybody knows Jesse Livermore. Um, everybody knows certain, you know, uh, people know Nicholas Darvis, the guy who does the, the Darvis box. But there, these names are all shrouded in mystery because there wasn't obviously an internet. There was no way to really document or know what these guys were doing. And W.D. Gann is the most opaque of all these people. Nobody really knows a whole lot about him. He's really mysterious. Um, he's known for using geometry and astrology and ancient mathematics to predict events in the stock market. Also overlaying historical events. Uh, people still use his, his, I guess, techniques. There, there's GAN lines or GAN angles. It's, it's in most uh, trading packages. Despite the fact that it's very spurious whether he actually traded or made money. Um, he wrote fantasy books. He wrote this book called uh, The Tunnel Through the Air, also called Looking Back from 1940. It's a science fiction novel. And in the novel, he hints that there's some secret wording or secret language, veiled language in the book that will unlock a massive secret about the market. And he said, like, the first time most people read it, they won't see it. And the second time people read it, some will see it. But most people will figure it out the third time that they read it. If you really look back at what Gann did objectively, he was a total scam artist. The guy supposedly left a fortune worth $50 million when he died in 1955. But somebody tracked down his son later in life and interviewed him and said, no, no, my dad could barely support the family. He, he had hardly any money when he died. And the real, the real giveaway is that towards the, the last five or 10 years of his life, he was selling a private master course to students for 5,000 bucks a piece, which back then was like 50 grand. So in retrospect, I think Gann was probably a total scam artist. But at the time in the 90s, I didn't know that. So I ordered this book. I can't remember what the name of it was. It, you can find it. It's his main book. And I got it and opened it up and my head almost exploded. It was all these weird geometric... It, I mean, even for someone like me that didn't wasn't you know, a mathematician, it just all seemed like pseudo math. It, it seemed like something, some like weird math formula that you would find in a bad sci-fi movie. And then he also talked about astronomy and he had actual, he, he thought that different commodities reacted to different planets. So for example, if you wanted to trade lard, I guess lard, there were lard contracts back in the day. Well, Venus and Jupiter had a big, in 
you know, effect on lard. And if you wanted to trade cotton, it was the sun and mercury and the conjunction between the two. And if you wanted to trade rye, it was a combination of Uranus and mercury. You know, even I was like, mm. so it was a combination of this is BS and also this is really hard. So I chucked technical analysis and forget it. Flip-flopped around for another year or two. Then I found a different bulletin board on Prodigy called, uh, it was, I guess it was still in the money talk section, but it was called TA on the net, technical analysis on the net. And this group of people really seemed different. These people really seemed to know what they were talking about. They were super old people, which means they were like 40 or 50, but they just, they just seemed, first of all, they seemed to get a lot of stuff right. They would not make calls, but they would say what they were looking for in the market, and then that would play out. And there was one guy, uh, his name was Richard Estes. I'll never forget. And he just seemed to be the axe. He seemed to know everything. And all these guys had backgrounds of engineers, airline pilots, all these professions where you have to do things in a very exact way, or you have disaster. You, know, you have to fly a plane in a certain way. You have to build a bridge a certain way. It all falls apart. And they were really good at technical analysis because the better you can follow your systems, follow your indicators, not try to override them with emotions or rationalization, the better you'll be. So these guys kind of sparked my interest again in technical analysis. So I got involved with them a little bit, but what I really, what really appealed to me is I thought it was easy. Right? I'm lazy at heart and I thought, oh, this is easy. You just draw lines. So I started doing technical analysis that way. Funny side note, we actually had a an in-person meeting. We were like technical analysis on the net. And even in 1992, there was still no, there was no audio, there was no video, you couldn't interact with people. So we, we actually had our first meetup, our technical analysis on the net meetup in person in Biloxi, Mississippi. And I think back on it and my mind is blown because I remember flying down there by myself, flying into New Orleans, renting a car, and in a pre-internet, pre-Google Maps time, just driving somewhere through Louisiana to get to Biloxi. I'm sure it wasn't the bayou. I'm sure there's a real, but it felt like the bayou. As I was driving through it, it even occurred to me at that point, because I was like 21, 22, like, if I got a flat tire out here, I could probably die and no one would find me. But that's what you did back then. And so I went to Biloxi. I met with all these people. It was great. Biloxi was super different than anything I had experienced in my life. I'd never been in the deep south before. I remember it being super humid. I remember going to the uh, the riverboats and gambling, but it was totally a great time. And then the next year, we did another one. This one was in Charleston, South Carolina. Another great uh, gathering. What I remember from that trip was I had the best Guinness up until that point and, and that I've ever had in my life at a sports bar in South Carolina. I know it's hard to believe. I've actually been to the Guinness Brewery in Dublin. I've had a Guinness, you know, when you go to the, the Guinness Brewery, you don't really take a tour of the brewery. You take a tour of the advertising, the history of, of Guinness's advertising, and then they just take you down to the pub at the bottom. So I had a Guinness in the pub, in, in the Guinness basement pub in Dublin that was fantastic and it still was not better than this Guinness I had in Charleston, South Carolina. So anyway, side note. So 
got involved with this group, technical analysis on the net. But once again, just did it because I was lazy. And I saw this was a, a quick, easy cheat on the market. I didn't want to study, uh, I didn't want to study 10 Qs. I didn't want to look through, uh, you know, earnings reports. I just wanted something easy. So I did that. That didn't work either because I didn't have the most important component about technical analysis. And that is the ability to, you know, ignore what your, what your gut and what your head wants to rationalize away. So the second time I got into technical analysis, it was because I was lazy. The first time I got into it, I thought, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm figuring something out that nobody else knows. But the third time that I got into it and it really stuck is when I realized my propensity for self-deception. I realized, oh, I'm really good at rationalizing stuff away. Meaning I'm in a stock, it's dropping, and I'll find every single reason to convince myself to stay in this stock, whether it's a, you know, back then it would be an, an, anal, you know, an analyst said something good about it, or it could be something as easy as like, oh, well, they're selling it in this store, so that must be good, or there's a CNBC report. Nowadays, there's thousands of reasons to rationalize staying in a stock that's not doing well. And I knew on some level, I knew on some level, in the same way I knew I should never play first-person shooter games because I'd never leave my house, I just knew that I needed something that could objectively tell me when I was wrong. Now, that doesn't mean I always obey what technical analysis says. And there's two types of, you know, there's two types of deception, uh, I guess in life, but definitely when it comes to the market. There's subconscious deception, where you don't really realize you're deceiving yourself. And then there is conscious deception, where you do realize you're deceiving yourself, but you don't change your behavior. That still happens to me. That happened to me recently last year with that stock everybody remembers, Mile. And I got into this stock and I got into it because of fundamental reasons, because Ryan Graves, who was the number two guy at Uber, had put $50 million into it. It was a former, it was a, it was a SPAC. And so, or, you know, a SPAC that he converted. And I said, oh, well, Ryan, you know, Graves, he's a genius. Why would he put $50 million in if he didn't think that this had long-term potential? And I told everybody, I said, I'm going to, you know, I'm, this is something I'm going to hold on to for three to five years. And I traded around it and I did really well trading around it. But eventually it just tanked. It just continued to go down and down. And I finally had to punch out at some point. But I got hurt because I actively deceived myself. I said, well... I know that I, you know, I'm willing to lose this money and I'm going to give it three to five years. And that gave me an excuse to really ignore the, the technicals. And it kind of brings us back to this market that we're in right now. You have a lot of people that are down really big. And the thing that growth stock investors, the thing that fundamental investors, value investors, the trump card that they always have that they always can pull out that will allow them to rationalize a loss is give it time, right? That's the bottom line. They can always just say, hey, give it time. And over time, they're generally right. Over the last hundred years, the, the S&P or you know, the Dow, whichever, whatever amalgamation of indexes they used to track all the way back a hundred years because there was no S&P a hundred years ago, uh, it returns nine to 11%. 
So over time, yes, that's true. Over time, you get whole. But you only get whole in the indexes over time. You don't always get whole with individual stocks. But that's the out because you can't disprove it. You can't say, well, I can guarantee you your stock will not come back in five years. You don't know that. We can't predict the future. But we can see what's happened in the past. We can see the deleveraging, the unwinding that we had in 1999. We can see the deleveraging, the unwinding that we had after the financial crisis. I talked about this in a post recently. Fuel cell was stock that was super hot in the late 90s. Everybody traded it. And then the hot money left and it went to bed for 20 years. Didn't go out of business. It just did nothing. And there's a lot of people right now that I would say they're self-deceiving, except they don't even have the context. Bill Gurley tweeted this out last week and he said, there's a whole generation of investors and traders that have learned their concept of valuation at the back end of a 13-year bull market. And that's so true. And it happens every time there is a bull market. It happened going into 87. It happened going into 99. It happened going into 2007. You get this whole new group of people that come in. They're attracted by the headlines. They're attracted by what seems like easy money. And then they form their baseline about you know, their baseline ideas about the market, how it works. You just, oh, you just got to wait and it will come back. Or a big drop down is always accompanied by a big bounce up or whatever the narrative is. And although we're all susceptible to that at some point, technical analysis helps me to check myself. I'm not going to get it right 100% of the time, but maybe I'll get it right 85% of the time. Maybe I'll get hurt 10 or 15% of the time, because I'm always going to take a flyer on something, right? I still have my MBIO shares right now, which are, let's not even get into that. But the point is, is you can take those, those flesh wounds as long as, you know, the majority of your trading, the more, majority of your investing is being managed with technical analysis from a risk standpoint. And like I said, that's what it took for me to get to, to get into technical analysis. We all we all need things that we can buy into before we adopt something new. And I tried to buy into that, hey, I'm smarter, I'm gonna do the shortcut thing, that didn't work. I tried to buy into the, oh, this is the easy way to do it, that didn't work. Knowing myself, and like I said, knowing my ability to, to spin a yarn and to put my head in the sand and to self-deceive, it's almost like a survival part of me said, you need something that's not gonna you know, cause you to blow yourself up uh, repeatedly. And that was technical analysis. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelungloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.